This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Let me uh, introduce you to the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio this evening. Uh, two veterans, one really a veteran, and I'm not talking seniority-wise, just <laughs> number of times she's been here. Uh, Sandy Shaw, member of the Port Authority, woman of distinction winner, Ward 1 municipal candidate, and now the co-host... Spe- well, we'll call her the star of Cable 14's City Matters on every second Wednesday before City Council with Mike Fortune and Darren Laidman. Thanks for doing this, Andy. Again? I like doing it. We love having you back. And next to her, someone you are very familiar with from watching CHCH over the years, at least until, you know, what happened. Um, Elise Cops, who joins us. This is the first time she has been back as a married woman. So mm-hmm. congratulations. Still have the cop's name. Still kept the cop That's name. That's a good okay. Name to keep. But yes, as, as and, and the wedding was great. The, everything it was, was raining, but great. Well, you know what? It's it's what's in he your wins, heart, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, we we um we walked out to the dinner and we had our DJ queue up. Um, the song Ironic by Alanis Morissette to the chorus where it says, it's like rain on, on your, your wedding, wedding day. day. So definitely memorable. But Absolutely it was. My guess is that ring might have compensated for some of the rain. Yeah. <laughs> you can't see it on not? radio, but that's <laughs> quite a sparkler. If you actually look somewhat sort of northwest, you can probably see the glint <laughs> through the, the windows of the sky. CHML You think studio. I could create s- enough light to uh, <laughs> to fend off the rain, but no. It's kind of like the Batman signal now. <laughs> pretty amazing. Elise just points her ring at the sky and Batman shows up. Uh, okay, you two. We got a lot of things I want to get to. Some of the stuff today is a little more serious. Some is a little less serious. But let's start today with some news that actually broke probably mid-afternoon today. And most of you probably heard it if you were listening to the news. I'm sure you caught it. And it's a, it's a bit of a puzzler. It is the uh, news that the FBI has reopened its investigation into Hillary Clinton's email scandal that they had said, no, there's no reason for charges on and on. And we are 11 days from the U.S. election, which leads me to believe, at least I would hope, that there must be, not hoping, I'm not rooting for or against, but just I would hope that if someone is going to inject themselves and possibly have this kind of impact on the election, I hope there's something significant there. They're, They're almost, if there's nothing, if this is just a lot of smoke, it seems like it has a huge potential impact on the election for nothing. But here's the question. We're not even going to talk about the emails about the FBI. That's just the the platform and part of the background. Could either candidate in this election who are so poorly thought of, both of them, have such low approval ratings, so hated by the other side, both of them, could either candidate, one of them's going to get elected, can either govern or, or is their presidency, whoever wins, essentially doomed from the moment they take the oath of office? Well, I would say that, you know, they, have, they, they will be doomed for different reasons, I imagine. I mean, if you look at Obama's presidency, I mean, he was not able to get anything passed, anything through the House. Essentially, he was almost like a lame, they call, call a president a lame duck president in the last, you know, few months or last year of their term. He almost in many regards was a lame duck because of the, the kind of impasse that we saw in the Congress. Hillary Clinton, it looks like if she wins and if the polls up until this point are to be... Um, you know, rely on them at all. She, you know, would win. She seems to have a clear path with the electoral votes that she's got, and there looks to be some promise that she will take that the, 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 the um, Democrats will have some majority in the House and the Congress. So she then may be able to govern in terms of getting th- things through Congress. But that's political governing. If you're talking about having the sense of the almost the moral authority to be a leader of the country with a country that's so clearly fractured, I mean, they talk about divisive. This is this is like the Grand Canyon of division between between uh, in the states. So I would say she, you know, she's elected and she is as successful as it looks like, getting some of the the, the uh, supporting, you know. Uh, supporting elected officials around her. She can pass legislation. She can move her agenda forward. But there's going to continue to be the kind of rancor and the kind of um, unease that uh, we see building up to the election, even to the point where we uh, people are feeling concerned that when there's talk of things like you know, there being revolution or there being, you know, violent protests against her election. Um, against both? Yeah. It's, against it's, both. It's just, it's really, really distressing and it's not even our country and I, I find the whole thing so upsetting and concerning. What do you think, Elise? Is there can either one be an effective president? 
I think that Sandy makes a good point about, you know, I guess if you really look at effective governance, it's about accomplishing the goals that you set out to accomplish. And, and that means having a solid team behind you and and getting enough people on your side to pass the uh, the legislation that you need to pass. I think that regardless of who takes office, and it does look like it will be Hillary, this election has taken the entire population of the U.S., multiple steps back in time and I think that it will take probably a few election cycles before they recover from that and potentially you know it's hard to say whether you whether you can recover from that flip in mindset where you've reverted back to previous generations where rampant racism was acceptable and I you know it's it's like those the mindset that existed 50 years ago now exists in an era of social media and immediacy and 24-hour news coverage, which just amplifies those sentiments. And it's really hard to delete that from your culture once it exists because people are, are looking to um, to one-up each other and it's it's constantly a defensive battle. And I think that regardless of who takes office, the other side will constantly be trying to shut them down on a on a moral level mm-hmm. and um, and a social level, potentially maybe not so much as as in the existing government on a, a governance level. but at the end of the day, you know the the safety of people's lives and I think people's ability to to feel, like they're making progress as a nation is almost as important as passing new legislation and, and moving forward as a government. But see, where and Sandy, you said you know if if either side, let's say let's say either side wins and wins also the House or the Senate, so they have the ability to pass legislation. But I still look at this and I think if there's enough uproar from the other side, politicians don't want to pass things that are going to get them voted out at a more local level. And mm-hmm. so even if, if Hillary Clinton gets the House or the Senate and could pass stuff, potentially, theoretically, or if Trump gets the House and the Senate and could pass stuff, are those politicians going to go along with that? And you mentioned, you used the phrase, the moral authority. Mm-hmm. And I look at this and I just see, regardless of who wins, every single politician from both the president, from below the president, is going to be heavily questioning not just the propriety of every bill that comes in front of them. It's if I vote for this, what happens to my electoral chances down the road, which could, again, even weirdly without any kind of real reasons, could just freeze everything. I don't want to vote for anything because it's going to mess me up. And, And if you've got two presidents, one or the other, who is so hated... And it's going to be very, I believe, whoever gets in, it's going to be a visceral mm-hmm. opposition to them throughout the whole term. Are you really wanting to do something that potentially is going to put the electoral crosshairs on you? Well, you're seeing that. So I agree with you that if, if Hillary's elected and the, the Democrats that support her and support her legislation are certainly going to be looking over their shoulders. And the reason that they're going to be doing that even more than ever is because they're seeing what's happening in, in this election cycle, where the, what they call the down ballot, right? So there's the top of the ticket, which is the, who you vote for president. Usually usually someone that votes, votes Republican goes from the top right down through senators all the way down to local controllers, and they usually go Republican all the way down. So now what they're talking about is splitting that ballot. So someone may choose not to vote vote for not to vote for Trump and then go democratic on the bottom. So what you're seeing is usually people that were uh, lifted up by the top of the ticket by their presidential nominee now are split. So you have Republicans saying I you know some of the new words that we've learned in this election disavow, right? There's another one of those many words of what do you call election bingo. So you're seeing that they are they're they're facing the consequences just be, even before they've got elected uh, from supporting supporting the platform and and the, you know, the the sentiment and the behavior of Donald Trump. So Democrats that get, if Democrats elected and they're following Hillary, they definitely are going to be concerned. I would agree 100% with you about, you know, about owning the sins of the mother, if you will. And 
But having said all that, it's a long four years. So when you get newly elected, you probably have a lot of hope and optimism that if you manage to pass, you know, really enabling legislation, uh, perhaps they can fix Obamacare and people will be happy. So I think at the very beginning, there's probably a real sense of rah-rah and we're in this together and, you know, they'll they'll hang together. See, I think the opposite. I think that you are divided immediately. And here's where it becomes crucial for us. Divided as a democratic governing? Well, no, the two sides of the country. Divided, yeah. But here's where it becomes important and interesting for us, Elise, is that the the position of president is supposed to be this seat. Forget the person. It's supposed to be a position that can sway world events by a speech, by flexing muscles a little bit. And if the rest of the world sees a country that isn't together at all, that is completely mm-hmm. split, that, to me, completely neuters that ability and you end up with I mean we think that what we've seen over the last 8-12 years around the world has been bad and things have gone swirling down the toilet if you don't have a strong US leader who potentially could flex those muscles and make some things happen it's only going to get worse isn't it foreign policies it it could be a huge problem yeah I think that a a president's ability to to sway other governments is is a reflection of their ability to rally their own mm-hmm. people around them. And and really, neither of the candidates in this case has demonstrated that ability. I think that there is a lot of, well, on Donald Trump's side, certainly fracture, like real dissent. I think on the Clinton side, it's not like there is there is not overt support. Um, I think that people don't have as much faith in her as we would like. It doesn't it doesn't seem like they have quite the same fault lines on in in their party as a whole. But I think neither of them has demonstrated a true ability to to rally not just, you know, their staunch supporters, but the, the maybes, because there is a huge pool of maybes right now. And a lot of those people are, are voting for a lesser of two evils or feeling, you know, like what what they say doesn't matter. Um, and if you can't get kind of the every man to to choose a side or at least to feel strongly about something, if you can't get your own party to feel strongly about your ability to lead, then I think that you have a very steep hill to climb if you're looking at getting other governments to to be on side with you and to take you seriously. Well, look, why did America, in most people's minds, lose the Vietnam War? It's because the people over there saw that the Americans weren't really invested in this, they weren't on board, and so we just wait them out and they'll go away. Why do people say that the Gulf War has gone on, the second one has gone? Because they look and they see, you know, people were not on side with the president. Well, if that's the case, then anything that the new president, whoever that is, is going to do, is going to have their legs cut out from under them before they even start. If you, if you go talk to Assad in Syria and you're the new president, what kind of, Sandy, what kind of moral authority do you have when you walk over there and they know, just wait him or her out because this thing is going to collapse. They're, they're not going to have any public support. Well, I, I guess I differ in some regard. You could take one half of the United States of America, all the Trump supporters or all the Hillary supporters, divide that country in half, put either Trump or Hillary in charge of it, and they're still the most powerful nation divided they in half. They still control the army. They still control the world, even if they're half the size that they are. And so I also think maybe I'm being, again, I've been CNN, I am, I'm CNN out. I've been watching it so much. So maybe I'm falling into the kind of the, the Putin conspiracy series theories that, that they're spouting out there. But I think that there's probably a lot more going on behind the scenes, you know, during when some of those international conflicts like, you know, like even now we're talking about Syria and Mosul and what happened in Vietnam, what happened in the in the Gulf War. M- my sense is that the America wanted to um, end that is, you know, they could end it. Do you know what I mean? I just yep. think they have the might to do it, right? And, just, but the other thing is there's nothing like a war to rally a country. You know, do you know what I'm saying? There's nothing like eventually you have a leader and there's nothing like, you know, an outside enemy to rally. Well, the outside right? enemy. Like That's when, was, I mean. when was the last time Americans were really... Had a good old... <laughs> no, but were really on the same page. Mm-hmm. It was when George Bush was standing on the ruins of exactly. 9-11. Exactly. So they're going to hear from us. And, right? and he had at that point something like an 89 or 90% approval rating. Yeah, exactly. Everybody was on the same page. Just before we go. For the, for the first break. I don't think anyone's arguing that Donald Trump is going to bring Americans together, but Hillary Clinton is using this line a lot, that I'm the one candidate who can bring Americans together. 
do you give I mean is there any real chance that to me that just sounds like a throwaway line that's do, do you see any chance that the Republicans are going to at any point go you know what yeah I'm I'm on board with Hillary she's all right no but I think that that is I think it it is a bit of an empty line but I think that she at least is is giving an opportunity for the nation to come together I think that Trump supporters will never get on side with no. her values because they have a flawed value system. Um, and I think that for for her to bring everyone together is impossible because and, – and this election has amplified that. The, the U.S. has such a huge um, contingent right now of people who feel so strongly hateful towards many minority populations. And I think that – they are not going to change. No, I agree. And and I would say just that Hillary is, you know, stats, you believe the polls winning over Republicans, about Republicans that are college educated women, not just women, but so she is, there are some Republicans who are have conservative values who cannot get on board with the Trump train. And if I could end this without being entirely insulting, I, might, I used to be part... Uh, junk House was a band with my, and we used to t- talk about when the Junk House fans showed up to the concert. It a little bit looked like a pirate ship let out. <laughs> so when I see those Trump rallies, I think it looks like a, someone pulled a pirate ship up to the parking lot and let these people out. And so I think that that is that kind of just outrageous hate and outrageous um, bigotry and and just anger, it just a pure unadulterated anger, no one's going to be able to get on board with that. Never mind policies that are conservative, right? I just think that there's... And here's where here's where this whole election, it, to me, is so strange because you have seemingly the two least likable people mm-hmm. on the planet are the two finalists yeah, I know. for the president. You've got one person who says a lot of really offensive things, and you've got another person who many believe is corrupt to the core right. and a criminal at her deepest level. So do you pick the one who says the things you disagree with or the one who does the things you disagree with, and maybe he'll do things you disagree with too? It The whole thing is just... It's it, ugly. It's ugly, and it Where it did Bernie you. go? Bring Bernie uh, back. I'm not sure about Bernie either, but anyway. Well, and I think we're going to find Trump, if Trump's elected, I, I can't believe that he hasn't got some really ugly skeletons in his closet. So we know, you know, we call Hillary crooked because she's been public record, you know, public person for all these years. I just think Trump's got a lot of skeletons in his closet. Here's the ideal. Here's the ideal from the U.S. election. Whoever gets elected gets impeached within two or three months of getting in and the vice president takes over and then... Which yeah, would not exactly. be surprising. On either side. Because here, we got to go to a break, but what happens with this FBI investigation that started up again today? Mm-hmm. And as someone on TV said today, no FBI investigation wraps up in 11 days. Right. They just don't do no. it. Which means there is potentially the possibility that you could have a president-elect who is under FBI investigation, who is then charged, which would almost force them to be right. impeached and run out of office. Nixon, right? Clinton, it's like not it's happened before. It would not be the craziest thing in the world that one of these two vice presidents is far closer to the Oval Office than any vice president we've had going into a presidency before. Anyway, got to take a break. Back after this on the Scott Radley Show. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I'm going to ask you this next question. Um, understanding that there is very high risk that I'm going to get stink eye from either or both oh, of you. No. However, I will, and maybe from Lisa too. <laughs> I, although Lisa's th- through the glass, it's hard to see stink eye, but she, I can see She's extended. Sensitive. I can see extended fingers if such things happen. There was a guy in Rhode Island. You may have heard this story this week. Guy in Rhode Island who wrote a letter to the editor to his local paper after. Oh yeah walking and going out and basically said, ladies, women, girls, whoever, you know, yoga pants are not for everyone. Not everyone can pull off the yoga pant look. There, you know, maybe some of you might want to consider something else, something a little more flattering. Well, this, of course turned his world upside down. There are protests outside his house. He's getting death threats. His social media accounts have been bombarded. So I'm going to steer at, stay at a safe distance from this one and let you guys take this because I can only get myself in trouble. But does he have a point? No. <laughs> Honestly. I just think women are always subject to 
so many opinions and critiques no matter what they wear. And I kind of think, well, A, yoga pants are actually quite flattering on a lot of people depending on the brand you buy. (laughs) But I think that someone who has that kind of mindset and is espousing it publicly like that is just looking to criticize women, period, um, and, and knock people down. And... Is there ever... Okay, for, let's forget yoga yeah. pants for just a second. Is there ever... Is any comment about anyone's fashion choices safe? If I had come in tonight wearing the old 1970s men's short, short cut-off jeans that were really too short <laughs> so the pockets were actually extending down <laughs> through the bottom, and I had way too much leg showing... Would it be okay for you to go, you know, because we're all friends to say, you know, maybe don't wear those outside? <laughs> well, I think if, if you if you know the person and you're making a comment to them on an individual basis, exactly. then that's a totally different ball game. Because maybe I, you know, I might say to one of my friends, are you sure you want to wear that? I, because if, you know, if you're, if you're going out together and you're, one of you is going to be dressed very differently than the other and you're just kind of saying, well, this is what I'm wearing, like... If you decide what you want to wear. Um, and I think that it's it's a very different thing if you know the person that you're talking to and you're speaking to them directly and you're doing it respectfully without making generalizations or, you know, inflicting your choices upon them. I think the only other situation where it's appropriate to make more of a generalization is when you are in a dress code scenario and there are certain expectations and someone is frequently falling outside of them. All right, Sandy, would it be okay to for you to make a blanket statement saying, men, don't wear your Speedos or thongs to the public pool? Right. Well, you know, probably Because I would. I'd say I, that. I, yeah, I, I think. But I think, <laughs> really, I think that this comes, n- not all things are equal, honestly. So I think the outrage from this comment comes at a, for, for women, a long, long history of being judged, of being controlled, of being told what not to wear and what to wear and double standards. I mean, the whole idea that you're either a good woman or you're, you know, or you're a bad woman and that often is, you know, what you do with your life or what you wear. So I think people are sort of really fed up with it. Uh, women are really fed up with it uh, after like a long history of this. I think that the comment has a lot, not, not so much to do with what was kind of seen as you know, I think it has a lot to do with the attractiveness. So, so you know, men, as you said, is exactly right. You know, men uh, making general statements about what they find attractive. I, you know what? Zero Fs are given now by women about men telling them what they think is attractive and what is not attractive. What if and Trump it... has raised this to a huge degree. Right? Go ahead, Elise. I think that, and this is kind of just um, spinning off of Sandy's point, the way that the statement is framed suggests that men are entitled to get enjoyment from looking at women. And it's like, and I experience this on probably a weekly basis having some, and it's, and it's like, I think about, do I want to wear high heels? Do I want to wear a skirt if I'm walking past certain areas of town? And like, I, I've screamed at people because of feedback they've given me just because I've snapped and I don't want to be that person, but it's like, it's like men and this is, yeah, it's generally men, often men in groups, um, feel this entitlement to like what they see and to say what they like about what they see and to say what they don't like about what they see. And that makes the assumption that what women are wearing is for the benefit of men and for, you know, for their eye candy. And I just think that it it puts this huge amount of pressure on people. If you want, if you're in the kind of the camp that you you really want to impress, then that's a, a huge amount of pressure. And if you're in the camp that you you don't give a crap, then it's very frustrating because you feel like you're being constantly objectified. What if what if the, this letter writer, honestly, what if this letter writer had been a woman saying, "Ladies, women, whoever, you know." This is not a flattering look for a lot of you. Would that have would that change the the tenor? Would that change your thought on whether or not it was cool or not? It, it might have taken it down a few notches. I, I would say that, but I still think the point is there that women are generally uh, sensitive and fed up with being judged with what they're wearing. And and can I just I actually practice yoga quite a bit, so if I can talk from the yoga perspective, it just happened to be that's essentially 
a sport that mostly women participate in. You, you know, men do, but for the most part, I'd say the majority of the people that do yoga right now happen to be women because they're a little more thoughtful and mindful generally, or they want to be more mindful. So it's something that women have embraced, and the whole industry around uh, yoga, in terms of even you know, yoga studios and yoga instructors, and the whole industry, like Lululemon has made, you know, this is a publicly traded company that has made uh, um, you know, a business model based on women wanting athletic, comfortable, well-wearing, well-fitting clothing. So the whole point of attacking this is we couldn't pick something that not only is it talking about what women are wearing and how they're looking, it's, it's pointing to an activity that women have largely embraced. So it's, a, it's like a double, double, double annoying comment. I didn't, I didn't read in the story that, uh, that followed this. I didn't actually get to uh, notice if he has a wife or a significant other yeah. in the house who is now huddling behind the curtains going, what did you do? <laughs> I think, yeah, and I think to your point of whether we would feel as strongly if another woman had made the comment, I think it might have felt more less angering and more hurtful because I think that... Judgmental? Yeah, and it's it's kind of... Um, I think that women struggle to support one another and to not cast judgment mm-hmm. because for so many years we have been held to this standard and, and often pitted against one another and competing for to a, competing to achieve a certain beauty standard. So I think when, when one woman makes a comment like that, and it happens pretty frequently, um, to, to knock everyone else down a few pegs, I think that it, it maybe doesn't raise quite the same ire, but it, it would make me very disappointed and, and kind of... Um, and just sad about the state of our, you know, our gender's level of support for one another. We have to go to a break in one minute. But before I get there, just before, just so for understanding for those of us guys who don't want to wander into this and step yeah, in. Right. But forget the guys for a second out of this. Is there something, would you ever, is there something that another woman would wear, not even a friend, that you would in general ever, is there ever a level where you would say, you know what, that's just not, no, nobody should be wearing that. Or, or are we, or honestly, or do we totally say, you know what, if you're comfortable, I don't care how, I whatever it is. I think it. <laughs> okay. And I think That's thinking and saying it's yeah. different. Yeah. But I think that, I think also you kind of have to think, does this affect me in any way? No. Like if, if someone is walking down the street and I think they're wearing unflattering yoga pants, does that have any implication on my life? No, it doesn't. And if what someone's wearing does not directly affect my life or any of my personal affiliations, then I don't think I really have the right to say anything. I think that we should all empower each other to let our freak flag fly. <laughs> if we want to wear, if you want to wear your shorty shorts, I'm looking forward to the next time we arrive in studio. For the record, <laughs> I do not own a pair of those shorts. Uh, the, what I do own at home, when I get home off and I will slip into what we call the, you know, relaxing or the casual yeah. stuff, it is so horrible. It is so <laughs> ugly that if my house ever caught fire, I would have to change before <laughs> leaving the flames because I wouldn't want someone to see me. But no, the, the shorty shorts... They don't exist, thankfully. No one has to worry about that. And you know what? If they did, I would actually call myself out on that one. <laughs> I, will, I should not be wearing those outside the house. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Terry Pekoski from the Hamilton Spectator has a three-part series in the paper that's been running yesterday, today, and tomorrow about youth hockey. Now, I'm not going to talk specifically about youth hockey. This this is a, a series. I hope people have read it because it's it's broader than just the idea of youth hockey. It's about youth sports. It's about finances. It's about availability, accessibility, all these kind of things. But at least you, when you were at CHCH, you were the edu- you were the uh, health reporter. You have covered this through your career. You've done health things. How much should, there, there are a lot of people based on this story now saying governments should be paying a lot more money into recreational level sports for kids, not just at the high end of the elite athletes, but they should be putting a lot more, a lot more money we're hearing into recreational level sports. Do you agree with that? Um, Let me turn your microphone on. That would help. I feel uh, maybe a bit mixed about it because I and and I am not certain on this, but I believe that the um, that the recreation rebate that existed until recently was actually redacted because it wasn't being used. So I think that it's 
it's not just about providing the funding for it. It's about kind of changing our our cultural mindset and and finding a way to make physical activity and not just sport, but physical activity um, a, a bigger part of our lives. A priority. A priority, right. So because I think that, sure, it's great if kids are really involved in sports, but that requires a whole host of of things beyond money. It requires that their parents are able to to get them there, to follow a routine. If someone's life is really unstructured and, and they're not even eating breakfast or wearing clean clothes, then, you know, being involved in sport doesn't matter because the money doesn't matter because they, they don't have the structure in their life to accommodate that. And mom and dad, I frankly, have to be interested too. Yeah, or someone has to be interested. So I think that, I think beyond money, we need to find a way to make physical activity um a priority really early on and that doesn't have to be expensive because you know we can be physically active walking to work or walking to school um or you know doing better things on the playground and i think that we kind of put this emphasis on organized sport and you know what's what's new and fun and the latest but we make it very difficult for kids to walk to school Mm. or to bike ride to school because of some of the the policies that we have in place and like this kind of you know nanny mentality yeah. where we don't where we report parents if if we see their kids walking on their own. So I think yes funding would would be certainly a part of it, but I think beyond that there there's a lot of more to be done. One of the area, I mean again, you can you can say because right now Canada does spend a lot of money into sports. But much of it is for own the podium where you and we, right. we've read stories today. I think it was the National Post today about how much if you're an Olympic hopeful or an Olympic athlete and you are someone who is a medal contender, you have no problem getting funding. But if you are the person who is, yeah, you might scrape into the Olympics, but, you know, you'll finish 47th. You're not getting much. So we'll spend, though, the money on the elite level. We'll spend money on hockey programs, on baseball, soccer, whatever. It's that the the grassroots stuff that we're we're talking about with this one. And Sandy, one of the other, I mean, uh, and Elise alluded to it. Not, to, I mean, she wasn't really going there, but it, it's an interesting point. We have done everything seemingly possible in our school systems to gas mm, activity we the first thing that gets can uh, if if it's a little wet outside recess canceled nobody goes outside sit in the classroom we have we've taken away games where you can play with a ball because somebody might skin a knee we've done everything it seems the first thing when there's budget cuts that goes is phys ed class we've done everything we can to diminish the importance of physical activity in our schools right and it's not just the importance of it. I mean, there's a whole political answer as to why it doesn't happen in schools anymore. But the thing, when it did happen in schools, there was universal access. So it didn't matter what your means were. If, you're, if you couldn't afford to participate or your, your parents were, as you uh, rightly identified, were working two jobs or didn't have the vehicles to drive you to the arenas or whatever your choice of sport was, we've made now, because we haven't, it's not offered at, at school, we've really created one barrier, most, mostly the barrier. I mean, there's many ways we can go at this, but a big barrier that I'd like to address is this whole economic barrier of, of kids participating in sports. And part of um, Terry's article really looks at um, where there are facilities where people can access sports in, in the community. And there's probably a real correlation between if you look at sort of the uh, some of the uh, lower income neighborhoods where, where they have fewer access, they have, they have less access to organized sports. I can speak of Eastwood Park, which is in the north end of Hamilton. It's one of the code red neighborhoods. And that rink, you know, they really, they don't have minor hockey there anymore because there wasn't enough uh, parents there that were able either to afford or had the time to take their kids there. I know Councillor Farr has done a, a lot of work to try and bring that back. But I think, you know, when we look at about what builds healthy communities and what is about, you know, like building community, and we talk a lot about uh, social determinants of health, one of the things is, you know, access to sports isn't just about keeping fit. It's about building those kinds of skills. You know, you you, meet, you have your friends, you learn rules, you have structure. And so it's way beyond, especially at a young age, just being fit. It's about building those kind of life skills that you need 
you know, to overcome maybe some of your shortcomings that you have or, or to, to learn some of the, the kind of the skills that will helpfully help you with better outcomes down the road. You know, there's all kinds of stories that I can't think of one right now. I'm thinking of Coach Carter, <laughs> one, of <my> <laughs> favorite, one of my favorite movies. But there are all kinds of stories about pro uh, athletes who, you know, give back to their community and they go back to their communities and they coach, you know, basketball, they coach football to help young people in the communities overcome some of the challenges they face. Yeah, uh, the uh, the thing that you were talking about with Counselor Jason Farr, Skate the Dream, is the That's program that called, he has yes. done at Eastwood, and it's, right. it's been a great program. Exactly. But there's two, so, I mean, very clearly what we're talking about, there's two different issues here. Right. One is do we spend money to give access, do we spend enough money to give access to kids to play sports? And two, do we do enough at our schools with finances to keep phys ed programs and other things going. I don't know which side of this is more pressing. I mean, to me, to me, quite frankly, the whole school thing, it's inexcusable mm-hmm. that we just keep dumping phys ed programs. And then we talk about, and at least going back to your medical you know, background, youth diabetes, youth obesity, all these things, when we have the capacity, we have the facilities, we have the opportunity, we have the people who are there, we could have kids. You know, once what government was it a while ago in Ontario that said, we're going to have half an hour or 20 minutes a day of vigorous activity. But do you actually believe that that really happens with every single... I don't. So there's that. But but let's, for the sake of this, because we're talking about Terry's article, should the government be pouring millions more dollars into saying, you know what, Elise, you're, you've just come to Canada, you have a child, you're in a low-income bracket, we're going to pay for hockey equipment, we're going to pay for ice time, we're going to pay for all this stuff. Or do you say, no, that's... You know, considering the tax dollars that we're already spending and we're going way into debt, that's a waste of money. Or or at least ill prescribed spending of money. I think it I think it would be ill prescribed to provide I think I, I, I it's more it's about more than equipment and financial access. I think that um and unfortunately for immigrant families this is a barrier that we can't even address before it becomes a barrier, but parents just are not I think it it is not instilled as a as a major priority in early years and in Hamilton we have this huge push to you know to raise our kids um and and to take advantage of those early years when the de- the brain is developing and when kids are developing and and to read to them um which is so important we we've I think achieved a certain level of emphasis on early development and um psychologically psychological development and and brain development, but I think that maybe we're not doing enough, and and I'm sure some people are, but maybe we're not doing enough to instill in parents the extreme importance of normalizing physical activity and making that a mandatory part of your life. And it can't be the first thing that you take off your list when you get busy. And that's unfortunately for a lot of families, particularly who don't have, you know, surplus income or or surplus hours in their day, that becomes the first thing to go. And I think that reminding parents, you know, if you're going, if you think it's important to read your child a story before bed at night, then it's important to go for a walk as a family before dinner, or it's important to walk to school or to burn off some energy at the park after school and making those things equally important in your kid's life. I think that pouring money into providing sports equipment and access to hockey and and kind of trying to funnel people into that path of potentially elite sports, which um, which Terry's article somewhat focuses on, I, I'm not sure that it's necessarily going to hit a home run because a lot of a lot of kids have that mindset of, you know, I want to be the star athlete and obviously not everyone's going to get there. And I think the the kids who do, who don't have, you know, the solid background leading up to that, um, are are a bit vulnerable when they do because they... Sports is unique that way because it is, while Terry's articles have pointed out very clearly that there is not necessarily a level playing field financially, sports is also, though, for those who are in it, the ultimate meritocracy, right? Because if you're good at it, you'll get further ahead. You can't buy your way into the NHL. You can help get someone further along, but as you say, you could be 
you could have parents who are putting all your resources into helping you, and if you're not good at it, you're, you're not, not going to get anywhere. You've still got to be good at it. Well, and then in the U.S., you also have all of these schools who are, you know, or all the prep of these schools, these schools and... that are scouting kids from mm -hmm. the inner city, bringing them to prep school where they're away from their parents and grooming them into elite athletes. And then once they get into that situation, they don't have the they don't have the family support because they've been plucked from their family. Mm -hmm. They don't have the financial savvy to to deal with the money that they're making. And so that's great that they've achieved this dream, but you know, what are you going to do when it expires? Look at almost every tennis player that's come out of the States and other places. They've gone down to, what is it, the, is it Boletary, the Boletary Tennis Academy in Florida and there's a prep school. Let me play devil's advocate for a second before we go to the break, Sandy, because while I agree with very much of what Terry has written in her pieces, we don't have anybody out there saying, you know what, those kids that get piano lessons and get to play piano all the time and get to have the top piano, that they have an unfair advantage. So why is why is sports different? You know, you can hire, Sandy Shaw could hire tutors, math tutors for her children in school because you, and we wouldn't have anybody saying, well, that's unfair. She won the math award, but yeah, but she had math tutors. We would say, no, that's that's a wise use of your money. That's, you know. Mm -hmm. So why is why are sports different from seemingly every other facet of life? Because well, they seem that way. Yeah, I, I would say, and I, I mean, most of, a lot of this focuses on hockey. So let's just, just call it what it is. Hockey has a, a particular meaning for us in, in Canada. So we focus on it. We almost mm -hmm. have national ownership of, of the, the health of our hockey nation. You know, Ron McLean's come back and he had his new his new prom promo for Hockey Night in Canada. And, you know, I'm a big fan, hockey fan, Ron McLean, Don Cherry, love it. And, you know, like Foster Hewitt, I am old, watch hockey. But when Ron McLean says, if you want to know what Canada is about, sit in front of the TV Saturday night and watch a hockey game. And there was the first time I thought, hmm, really? Is that really, Ron, what ho hockey Canada is all about? Because it's exactly what it does. It, there's certain people that can't uh, achieve that dream. You know, they really can't achieve that dream. So I think that the reason that there's sort of lopsided the focus on it is that it is a lot to do with sports being so publicly accessible. And really, sports being big business. I mean, we, we you talked about should we pour money into sports? Well, we do pour money into it. You know, we pour money into it. I mean, even if you look through our tax dollars in terms of, you know, the money we pay to support schools, the money we pay through our municipalities to support, you know, arenas and so forth. So we're putting money into it at that level. And then, as you mentioned earlier, the money we're pouring into it at the elite level, uh, really. And if you look at corporate sponsorship, some of the corporate sponsorship dollars that go in at the elite level is big business. So I think that really that's probably why you know, people are paying much attention to it because for whatever reason, it's popular and it's big business. You know, you don't get the same kind of, you know, viewership Saturday night for the piano recital as you do for <laughs> the Leafs versus the Habs, right? Maybe what you need is Ron McLean and Don Cherry at the piano <laughs> exactly. recital. I would watch Don <laughs> Cherry exactly. commentate a piano <laughs> recital. Right. I really would. Right. Maybe they're just missing the boat. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Wine is now available in a lot of supermarkets in Ontario. As of today, they were stocking the shelves with wine today. Sandy, is that why you were late in arriving tonight? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's really good, too. Uh, you know, and on the one hand, uh, we've long argued in this province that we want convenience when it comes to this kind of stuff. And it's going to be, you would think, much more convenient, assuming that it's... Well, the beer in the, in the stores is a bit of a mixed bag because it's the... If you don't want the... Molson's or the Labatt's or the, the regular brands, if you want, you have to go and kind of get the craft beers or whatever that's there. But it's going to be a lot more convenient. But is that good for us? I mean, ultimately, is this a good thing that we are now, I mean, it sounds like we're talking nanny state, right? But I mean, is it a good thing that we're putting wine and beer into supermarkets? To be honest, I um, I rarely take advantage of it as it is now in some stores that I go to, I guess. And maybe it's because I haven't formed that habit yet. But I I guess the way I buy alcohol is always, like, wanting the the freedom of choice and to, to look around the LCBO and, and choose the bottle of wine that I want or, I don't know, whatever it is. From a big, yeah, from the full choice. Yeah, and I think, like, I don't know. I guess for convenience sake, it, it would be great if you're having people over for dinner. It's like one less step that you have to make in your life and you're going to buy that bottle anyway. Um, in the When I go visit my sister in the U.S., it's like a candy shop. You see 
every kind of beer and they're all craft beers and they're all colorful and it's like you oh maybe I'll just try this so you, you might pick something up as an impulse purchase I feel like the way that we're going to introduce it here will be a little bit more tempered and it's not going to entice me in the same way but things could change in a few years Sandy what I find curious about this and maybe I'm not making the right connection but what I find curious is that the government is trying to introduce more available wine and beer at the same time that we have governments saying we should be making cigarette companies have unmarked labels and we may want to start considering a tax on sugary drinks and we're tr- we're telling one side of the argument we don't want you doing unhealthy things and then the other half of the argument is oh yeah but we want you to drink because that's tax dollars into our pocket and it, it just, it seems like it's, to me, it seems like it's a mixed message. And I, I'm not against the idea of having these things in the, in the supermarkets, but it seems like it's a completely mixed message from the various forms of government. Well, I, I suppose... Especially now they're going to be trying to introduce marijuana, too. It, it, I was just going to say that. So I think the whole idea is that it, you know, I mean, really, follow the money, and there, there will your answer be as to yes. what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. But, it, you know, in terms of it, uh, alcohol... As a um, you know, as an addictive substance or a not healthy substance, I, I suppose it is kind of ironic that they spend, you know, on one hand they make it's a profitable business for the province of Ontario, and then if you look at another ministry, they have probably spent a lot of money on education and treatment uh, at the same side. So I I see the irony of what you know I, I can see that it's what you're saying makes is ironic and makes no sense, but at the same time. You know, they're probably trying to go, drive right up the middle. They want to make, you know, uh, citizens happy because they're looking for extra access. They do want to increase their revenue. I mean, I suppose there's even that there was talk that they wanted to sell off the LCBO assets, as in not even so much the LCBO, but in fact, the real estate assets of the LCBO. So really, I think this, the answer to this question is not so much in a, is a public health issue, is it's a public purse issue that we're looking at. But what about Elise's comment, which I think is, is, is fair too, is why are we doing this with two or three or five or 10 things? Why not just say, hey, you know what, if you own a Fortino's, if you own a Sobeys, whatever, you're allowed this much shelf space. We can't make you just clear out everything and make it a booze store. You can have a full line of shelf space, but you know what? You can have whatever you want in here. You don't have to have a certain type of thing. Why not just say, well, fine, if we're going to throw it open, let's throw it open. I think they're kind of trying to kill two birds with one stone because they've promised more shelf space to Ontario wines and to craft Mm -hmm. breweries. And that's really hard to achieve in the LCBO because that prime real estate is already occupied and, um, you know, and that I, I think that you're when you're changing something that already exists, it's harder to do that. So I think that in this new framework, they're maybe trying to accomplish this promise that they've made to Ontario wineries and craft breweries in addition to the promise they've made to the public to make it more accessible. I don't know what the numbers are, but I think it would be really interesting to to look and compare some provinces where alcohol is more accessible. Um, And, you know, like in in Quebec, it's so easy to just swing by the convenience store on your way to a party and you you buy whatever and that's that. Um, But I don't know, are are they worse off for it? Have I... I would yeah. hope that we we've kind of investigated it, but I think it's when you're to your point of comparing one evil to another, and and alcohol is certainly a, a dangerous substance. You know, you hear about misuse that leads to to death. We had a, a kid die mm-hmm. over Thanksgiving weekend, tragically. Like it's it's very dangerous in that respect, and it's also highly addictive. And we have many people who who misuse it, even just by you know having a few too many drinks on a nightly basis, and they're maybe not getting rip raging but but still they it can be quite destructive um and we do look at other substances maybe with a little bit of a a sterner eye because there are direct correlations to any use period with cancer like when we're looking at cigarettes it's very clear no no matter how much you're smoking you are increasing your likelihood of cancer with alcohol it's it's a bit difficult and and the same Mm -hmm. thing with sugary drinks and food it's like it's okay in moderation. Don't overdo it. And but that's why it makes, I think for kids especially, that's why it's dangerous is because we, alcohol has been glamorized. It's been glorified. And listen, I mean, I'm not, I'm not speaking as a, you know, a holier than thou. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll drink a glass of wine. I'll, you know, but the reality is we have 
sort of made it into a thing where if you're if you're in university, if you're wherever, oh, you should help yourself, knock yourself out, literally. Um, but don't smoke. Don't have a cigarette because that'll that'll kill you. But alcohol, no, go whatever. And we send these weird messages. That they're now in the same store, almost at the exact same spot. One of them is an as you pointed out, Elise, the cigarettes would be a horrible, terrible evil. Ignore them. We've got to have them behind a shelf now. But booze, oh no, more booze, more booze. Here, have more booze. It's just these weird mixed messages that the government sends. Yeah, and I think it's it, it's kind of like the messaging is flipped for each of them. So, A, we can't have television ads promoting cigarettes anymore, but anything, whenever cigarettes are referenced, it's always the evil up front, which I totally, like I... I saw a kid running down to catch a bus the other day and his cigarettes fell out of his pocket and I was literally cheering. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the that messaging is always, you know, like evil is at the is at the forefront. Um, and then any any details about cost or where to buy or whatever. And with alcohol, it's like the the danger is always a footnote. It's like, oh, this is a great party and we're drinking all this beer and get all these girls and then by the way, please drink responsibly mm-hmm. is like the last thing that's said. And I think maybe we just kind of need to change some of our, our standards around how that information is presented. It's so, just, go ahead. No. I, I don't know. I just have a way more cynical view of this. And that is that, again, follow the money. So it, it almost seems more than coincidental that when people were starting to win huge lawsuits against uh, some of the, the, the tobacco companies like R.J. Reynolds, that the province of Ontario decided they'd want to back away from that. So I honestly feel like this is a, a risk exercise, liability proofing the province of Ontario from a class action lawsuit because that happened. And so I think, you know, I think that there's some cynicism in there. It's really not necessarily about what's in the best interest of the public health. I think that maybe they were just trying to, you know, uh, you know, really lawsuit proof themselves. And, you know, the other thing I would like to say is that you know, like government-run stores are just not generally <laughs> the most well-run stores. When you think of the province running a store, it just doesn't seem, you know, the LCBOs, they've done pretty well, but when you just think about them being entrepreneurial or offering the kind of choice that we're looking for, you don't think of the government running this well. And, you know, I'm usually not a big fan of the whole notion of privatizing anything, but really, if you're really, if this is about driving tax revenue, privatize the thing and just tax these successful businesses and we might end up revenue positive at the end of the day. The one thing that I assume they're doing, although I don't know, but I'm I'm assuming they must be, is I hope that all these new supermarkets that are having wine and the ones that have beer now, that they are regularly sending in marks, younger kids, teenagers, to try to buy something to see if the stores are in fact doing what they're supposed to do by checking for ID. Because again, you know what? All of us in this room, if we walk in and we want to buy a case of beer or buy a bottle of wine, we're adults, fine. But I'm really hoping that part of this whole process is checking to make sure that this is not something that's easy Mm -hmm. to get. Because again, what everything has just been talked about. Alcohol is, through commercials and everything else, it's made to look like it is just part of the great life. Well, and what's the standard as well? It would be interesting to know, and maybe you do, um, about the age of the cashier that can sell this. Because if you go to Fortino's, it's like, yeah, particularly down by St. Mary's, everyone is coming and working their shift after high school. Um, hmm. and they, Hadn't even thought of like, that. Mm-hmm. They can't legally sell alcohol. So I, I don't know. It's, I guess right. we're still kind of getting acquainted with the, with the process and the idea, but I maybe I should educate myself a bit more <laughs> about maybe. what those practices are. Or maybe are. I, I'd like to educate myself a bit more on where are the grocery stores that are selling this. We'll, we'll it's not my so local grocery store. Okay. Yes, we're going to send Sandy <laughs> on an exploration of like Ontario yeah, on a right. booze-buying yeah. exploration <laughs> of Star Ontario. Skis, um, yeah. yeah so I've got a bit of a list. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you just got married. You had to, we're just going to say it's because you had to find booze for the for the wedding. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred. AM nine hundred CHML.